This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. No, I'd go from rags to return. Very nice song to set up this next segment. It's based on a story that's an excerpt from a new book, a new book out today. Always happy to have the author on big release day when the book drops. The book is called Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. The author is Adam Minter. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, as well as Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Gentlemen, welcome to both of you. Adam, congratulations on the book. And our producer, Paul Brennan, was in just before we came on air, and he said exactly what I was going to say, which is, this is an amazing story. Like, this is a story you sort of didn't see coming in a lot of ways and really sort of underpins so much of the global economy. Tell us about the rag trade. Right, well, it's not a new trade. It's as old as the Industrial Revolution in an industrialized sense. Uh, really, when the Victorians started manufacturing textiles, they they needed rags to clean up all the oily messes left behind by the equipment. So, you know, when people stopped using that fabric, they cut it up and, and made it into rags that wiped the machines up that made more fabric. And, and where do rags come from, though? Because that's like the amazing thing about this story is like this rag, the rag is this thing you totally take for granted. So where do they come from? They come from used clothes. Um, and about one third of the used clothes in the United States ultimately are bound for rag companies and cut up and ripped up and, and packaged and sold all over the United States and the world. So put this into the context of, I feel like, a debate that we're really starting to have more and more. Yesterday, in the seat you're sitting in, we had Dana Thomas. She's the author of a book called Fashionopolis that came out over the summer. She's really taking a very hard stand, as are many, against fast fashion. You know, all the uh, sort of economic and also climate implications of that. Feather this all in. Sort of your your mm-hmm. book takes a really hard look at where clothes come from, where they're going where we use them, how we use them, and and the implications of that. Well, one of the interesting things about fast fashion in relationship to the rag trade is that fast fashion is bad for rags because it tends fast fashion tends to be made be made from very poor quality right. fabrics and they don't absorb. So if you're looking to you know wipe wax off a car at a car wash or a spill off a bar at your favorite bar, you don't want that T-shirt that comes from say a Forever Twenty One because it doesn't absorb very well. So actually, this is another way you could say that fast fashion. Is is, you know, ecologically unsound. Which there's also, that means that there's some craft in how you get the rag, right? And you found sort of like the master craft like of rags, right? Like what's that what's that story? Well, Star Wipers is a company based in Newark. It dates back to the 1970s. This is Newark, Ohio. Newark, not, yes, excuse no. me. Yeah, Newark, Ohio, outside of Columbus. Very important. And uh, Todd Wilson, who's the VP there, but he basically runs the show. You know, they started noticing a few years back that the quality is just going down and down and down. And what used to be labeled 
100% cotton t-shirt is not a 100% cotton t-shirt anymore, even though it's labeled a 100% cotton t-shirt. And that's not good because if you say take a poly... Not good for the rag trade. Not yeah. good for the rag trade. That polyester, if you sell it to an oil pipeline company, they rub it on the uh, uh, the pipeline. It could actually have electricity and explode. So they had to actually start manufacturing new rags from cotton that they basically follow from farm to factory. They call it the STB, the Simply the Best, where they assure people this is not a secondhand rag. It's a real rag. I love that there are like quality control concerns in rags. Right. Like, you would never expect that. And yet it might be a life and death matter in some industries. It's, a, it's critically important. Can I just say, Adam, just as an aside, like Joel is kind enough to join us just about every day on this program. And it's very rare that I see him get this excited about his story. Like this is so in your sweet spot. It's crazy. I, it, we we swing big with a lot of important stories. Like we've got, you know, Disney Plus story right. on the cover this week. It's You know, we talk about strategic stories a lot. But sometimes there's just stories that are like they fill you with joy. And yeah. this is an example of that, Adam. And I, I think, you know, just kudos to you for finding a, like a story that no one's ever managed to like really tell a story about of a thing that we all sort of rely on and take for granted. So what did you what did you end up learning from finding this story and telling secondhand your book? Right. Well, I mean, this story, when I got to Newark, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to be getting because as, as we were talking before we came on the air, nobody has written about this. You know, I didn't know how to locate these companies, even though they're so important. And the thing that was most striking to me is, again, what we sort of touched on is that there is this really serious quality issue yeah. in terms of fabrics, um, that there is a fraud issue, you know, that, you know, that 100% cotton t-shirt is not a 100% cotton t-shirt and it's not an each issue. I mean, they're getting 100% cotton stuff all day long and finding out that it's just not what it says it is. So it is a crisis of quality out there. Yeah. So how amazing. lucrative is this rag business? Well, it's lucrative enough to be a 200-year-old industry, and it's right. still out there, and it's growing all over the world. I mean, China, if you go on Alibaba, Taobao, you see all kinds of companies, you know, advertising and marketing their rags. So it's a hugely lucrative business, or people wouldn't do it. That's absolutely right. Well, congratulations on the book. It's called Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. For an excerpt, check out this upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It is a keeper for sure. Adam Minter is the author. Joel Weber here with us as well, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. So give some credit where it's due. Give you know who I All right, so there's a lot of talk about credit these days. Private credit, private equity seems like so yesterday. It's not, but uh, private credit really coming on strong. Let's get into why. Uh, Michael Ewald back with us. He is the head of private credit up at Bain Capital, based in Boston, here in New York City with me today. Great to see you. Good to see you as well, Jason. You're not Thanks. wearing a tie, which people on radio can't see. You're really a trendsetter. You I sort try. of shamed me into not wearing a tie the last time, which I very much appreciate. Um, so in the big bad world out there, the economy continues to sort of chug along. We heard from the president a little bit earlier uh, here in New York City. What does the credit picture tell us about the world? Look, it's a great question. You know, at Bank Capital Credit, we're very bearish on the economy right now. Um, we keep thinking that there is some sort of economic cycle down leg coming coming uh, relatively soon here. So we've positioned our portfolios very defensively in terms of industries, in terms of being more senior in the capital structure. But what's interesting is what we observe on the street is things like there's wage pressure at some of our companies. And so you wouldn't expect to see wage pressure necessarily if we're 
you know, about to fall off a cliff economically. So we're still staying, uh, staying conservative, but we're not necessarily seeing any imminent signs of the economy falling off a cliff. And so talk to me about the private credit market, because I feel like it's something that we throw around a lot, certainly here at Bloomberg. It's fast growing. What are we actually talking about here? <laughs> Another great question. So it used to be that direct lending and middle market meant the same thing, but I feel like those two terms have bifurcated now. So middle market lending is simply lending to smaller companies that can't access um, liquid securities effectively or broadly syndicated bank loans, for example. Direct lending used to be just lending directly to those companies, but now direct lending has also come to mean disintermediating some of those larger syndication banks, and you're starting to see some private placements effectively becoming larger and larger in the marketplace. Right. And is it fair to say that this, and I think we talked about this last time you were with us, I mean, this is a business that has fundamentally changed over the last 10 or 12 years, in part because folks who are in the business, those big banks, just aren't in it to the extent that they were. And a lot of firms like yours have really stepped in and, and grown pretty tremendously in the meantime. That's certainly true. Uh, you know, and what we see, a lot of our business relates to, to private equity sponsor right. buyout back transactions. And sometimes um, there's a competitive angle on the private equity side of things. And so private equity sponsors need to move fast and, and, and try to win a deal quickly. Uh, one of the ways you can win a deal quickly is by having committed financing. And sometimes coming to one or two direct lenders, for example, is a lot quicker than going to a bank who then needs to syndicate uh, uh, that particular term right. loan out, for example. All right. You just teed me up for my next question so beautifully. <laughs> oh, oh. I appreciate it. Uh, part of what we've been talking a lot about in the world of private equity, private credit, leveraged loans, et cetera, is this rumored deal, this mega, uh, mega buyout that could set all sorts of records. Is there the market appetite for a $60, $70 billion LBO at this point? Uh, it would take a lot of lenders to actually pull that together, in my opinion. You know, you're talking $40, $50 billion of debt. Right. Um, despite all the money that's been raised in this in this space, for sure, you know, that's been raised a billion, $2 billion at a time. Yeah. So if you want some diversity in those portfolios, obviously you can't write that big a check. So um, it'll be, that, that'll definitely test a lot of things, I think, in the market today. Right. And does that tell us something about the broader appetite for alternative assets in general? Uh, do you think? Because the investors on the equity side and the credit side seem to sort of be there to support these types of deals. Well, I, I think we still need to figure out whether it is just KKR that's interested in that particular deal, yeah. right? Because um, it, it was pretty standard to have these club LBO deals right. that were pretty big, uh, you know, pre-crisis even. And uh, I, I'm not sure to what extent one player is going to pull off a deal that uh, of that size, right. quite frankly, either on the equity side or the debt side. So right. it used to be a little bit more common, and it's been gone for 10, 12 years now. So we'll see if we're the back to that. The sort of clubbing. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you think about investor appetite for your particular business, it seems to be robust. You know, we had one of your, I, I think, competitors, Alrock Capital, sell a stake, mm -hmm. uh, valuation in the multiples of, of billions of dollars for the management company there. Uh, clearly, institutional appetite is there. Do you see that waning at all? No, uh, for, for a simple reason, really, and that is yields are still low yeah. uh, around the world. And obviously, negative yields in, in, in parts of Asia, parts of Europe as well. Uh, the risk-free rate is pretty darn low right now. Uh, on the syndicated side, you can earn 3 4%, but if you want that, if you're um, okay keeping your money liquid, you can earn a 100, 200, 300 basis point premium for that. And so we're seeing a lot of investor appetite, especially amongst the institutional side. It's almost like a fixed income replacement. Right. 
Fed's your friend in this case, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, and do you hear anything, just about 30 seconds left, do you hear anything from the Fed or, or from sort of policymakers that would make you doubt that we're, we're going to be in this low-yield environment for a while? No, look, the only thing from a regulatory perspective uh, th that, that is interesting is LIBOR is going away, yeah. uh, you know, in another Great 18, point. 24 months or so. So I think there needs to be some work done around that, but I don't see anything that, that um, necessarily is going to impact Right. The, the rate overall. Great stuff. Michael Ewald is head of private credit for Bain Capital. He's based up in Boston, uh, also an alum of the number two business school overall, the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, uh, according to Bloomberg Business Week last week, those rankings. You can check those out online as well. And check out this interview uh, via podcast if you missed any of it or you just want to get even smarter about the private credit business. All right. Well, as of today, it's official. The mouse is in the streaming business. Disney Plus, a big launch today, highly anticipated to say the least. So let's talk about how it's going so far. Jeff Greenfield is here with me in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. He's the chief attribution officer for C3 Metrics and Gita Ranganathan, Ranganathan, excuse me, technology media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's on the phone from our BI headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey. Jeff, I want to start with you. Uh, you and I were talking a little bit before we came on air here widely anticipated so much content out there but let's stick with disney for the moment what do you what do you make of it what do you make of it so far today people are overwhelmed it, it, there's just there and 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 as we said earlier there is so much content out there but if you look in the news right now you can even see that disney is overwhelmed uh with the response they had some issues starting up this morning of course there's a question did that actually really happen or is that just another story for the press to make people feel like that they're overwhelmed right but walking the streets of New York today, it, you can't not see Disney. There's there's outdoor. Every cab has Disney Plus. It, the whole idea is that if you have not subscribed to Disney Plus in one way, form, or another today or tomorrow, your kids are going to force you to do it. Yeah. So, Gita, come on in here. And as Jeff points out, like my kids are all over me about this, trying to figure out what our streaming strategy is going to be. I've asked for a little bit more time. I don't know if they're going to give it to me or not. But what do you make of sort of the, the Disney launch? You did a great presentation last week at the year ahead, sort of teeing all this up. Now the day is here. What does it look like in real life? Um, so, yeah, I absolutely echo th those comments. I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of excitement building up for this service. Uh, and it's, you know, it's really justified because if you just look at the catalog of content, they're really anchored by some very, very uh, uh, brands that are beloved across the world. The, the price point is extremely compelling. So from a viewer's perspective, uh, I, I think they're really getting bang for the buck. And so, Jeff, Put it in the context of, of the rest of the streaming world. You know, we've been joking about the idea that we're sort of going to have to make all these decisions. But what is it about Disney that's going to make it competitive with Hulu? Also, you know, could be part of the bundle, but sort of a competitor. Because ultimately, there's only so much time that we all have to, to consume all this. What's going to determine winners and losers? Or do we know? Well, I think we can step back and immediately say that Disney will be a massive winner. D Disney has been in the content game for years. They are experts at this. They have an algorithm down. They know how to roll out content. They know how to roll it back. 
They know exactly what they're doing. They also have all of the major franchises. And as they've proven, they're not afraid to put their money where their mouth is in order to acquire more content. The big story here, though, is what's going to happen to everyone else right. that's here. And if you look at the other players in this space, you look at Amazon with Prime, and you really have to look at the complete stack. So Amazon really has a complete stack. They have a streaming service. They've got this shopping back end, and now they have a physical uh, marketplace in Whole Foods and now in other, other shopping coming out. And if you look at Disney, Disney is very similar in that. But then if you go and you look at Netflix, Netflix is just streaming. So what's happened over the course of, of just a few years is this incredible form of entertainment, which is streaming, is now just a feature of a larger business. Right, right. And it is going to be even, even if Netflix all of a sudden turned on advertising, there would be no way that they could compete with Disney and the amount of content they currently have. Right. So what that means is, is that you're going to see some consolidation because now all of a sudden you have Peacock coming out. There's more and more streamers that are coming out. It just makes us more competitive and it's going to be impossible for them to compete. For Disney, Disney's going to be the winner. Yeah. There's no doubt. And so, Gita, if you're looking at this, if you were sitting at a competitor right now, you see this rollout, what are you taking away from it, both in terms of execution, sort of day of, but also the strategy that seems to be underneath it? Yeah, I mean, this has been a really well-orchestrated uh, move by Disney. I mean, it's been so many years in, in the making, Jason. They had to acquire the technology with BAM Tech. They had to acquire, I mean, they obviously have a fantastic library to begin with, but they, w they went ahead and kind of added to that extensive catalog with an $80 billion purchase of Fox, integrating all of those assets. So, I mean, if you're not a Disney, if you're not a Netflix, um, it really is going to be hard to compete. The costs right. of content are are escalating at a dramatic pace. I mean, just Netflix alone is spending about $15 billion this year, maybe $20 billion next year. Um, and remember, Disney is also going to be losing money in the process. Yes, of course, they come up, they come out on top in terms of subscriber numbers, but it's going to be a while before they actually make money on the service. Right. Well, and Jeff, it's such an interesting point that Gita makes, and I hadn't really thought about it in this way, but they have bought this content you know, Bob Iger has sort of bought this over the years. He's sort of amortizing his costs in some ways. You think about Star Wars, you think about Marvel, you think about even going all the way back to the Pixar acquisition, plus the recent Fox acquisition. Clearly, they're going to be spending money on new content, but that library is unbelievable. Oh, it, it's absolutely incredible. And I mean, if you just go back a number of years ago, no one anticipated that DVDs, people would buy DVDs and and, and have them at home. And so that created a whole new stream of revenue. And now you've got this streaming. It's the gift that kind of keeps on giving for content producers. It, it just proves over and over again that it used to be about the tech itself here. Uh, when you think about the streaming technology, and what we're realizing is it's really about content. Content is king, but it's also the data that's behind that content. Right. Because once you have that content going, now there's a whole new stream of monetization, which is not the subscribers, but it's the advertising that can go along with that. And that's the piece that Netflix has said that they will never touch. But the reality is that even if they were to go into advertising, they still would not be able to play catch up in terms of the amount of content that Disney Plus is going to have. Right. It's really going to be amazing to watch and certainly uh, a day that people look back on as an important one for Disney. Uh, Disney series 
shares, we should say, are up about a little over 1% today. My thanks to Jeff Greenfield, Chief Attribution Officer for C3 Metrics, normally based up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, here in New York City today. And Gita Ranganathan, she is Technology and Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining me on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. All right, so we were talking a little bit about this when we wrapped up our coverage of President Trump and looked ahead to tomorrow and Jay Powell testifying on Capitol Hill. Peggy Collins here with me. So we decided that we should have someone who works with her down in Washington round this out for us. Chris Condon, Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg. He's in our 99.1 studio down in our nation's capital uh, talking about his story the Fed likely to defy history with rates steady through next year's election. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Jason. How are you? Good. I've got your boss here. So, you know, mind your P's and I'll Q's. I'll try my best. <laughs> hey, Chris. So hey tell us what's going on here, because as you say, and we certainly live in a world where nothing really goes the way history would necessarily set it up to. Uh, but what is uh, what are we expecting here from the Fed as we get into 2020? Well, based on what we've heard from the Fed, from multiple policymakers, it really looks like they're on hold, and not just for a meeting or two, but probably well into 2020, if not all the way through until after the election. And we, we, uh, we pointed out in that piece that you mentioned that, you know, conventional wisdom is tempted to say, well, you know, the Fed, they probably like to always avoid making moves in an election year. But that has not been the case. If you look back over the years, in fact, we looked over the last 10 presidential election years, and in pretty much every single one, the Fed has taken some uh, monetary policy action usually raising or lowering interest rates. Uh, in 2012, it was QE3. Uh, now, in 2016, they didn't hike rates until after the election. Um, but nonetheless, the, the point is clear. History shows that they've never been really shy about doing whatever they thought they needed to do, election year or no. And Chris, this is pretty amazing because we're going into this context of an election year after a year where the Fed has really been pounded by the Trump administration. So do you think in some ways they may get some pushback for not moving next year or or how do you think that will be received? Uh, I think no matter what they're going to get a lot of pressure from this White House. Uh, you know, the die has been cast with this president. He's going to hammer the Fed no matter what. Um, now, they have put out some pretty clear markers in December at his press conference. Powell made clear that they've now, uh, excuse me, in, their, in uh, the October press conference, um, they've cut rates three times in a row now. Um, that provides some insurance against a downturn that they don't really see coming, but it's a sort of just-in-case risk management strategy. Um, and, and that's enough. And they're not going to move further in either direction unless something really drastic changes with the economy. Powell used the words material change. That's, that's a clear sign that it's going to be hard for them to be moved in either direction. 
So what do you think the Fed will be mostly looking for now in terms of signs for how their three cuts so far are working? In terms of, I mean, we haven't talked about it over this past year, but could there be a case for actually going in the other direction and hiking in 2020? That could. Uh, theoretically, yes, but I think the bar is even higher on the hiking side. It's high, as he said, uh, before they would cut again, but even higher. They'd have to see a real um, um, persistent and strong move in inflation data, real realized inflation data, to make them think about, even think about raising rates again. In fact, they're, they're trying, I think, to, to signal that the balance of risks for them, even though they don't put that line in their statement anymore, the balance of risk for them is ever so slightly just still tilted to the downside. They don't want the market to start pricing in a rate hike and start moving financial conditions upward. They're trying to steer clear of that. So still, you know, tilting it a little bit to the downside. And now on that, on the downside, I think what you're going to have to see before they would start to entertain another cut is a, a real deterioration of consumer spending. And that probably is not going to happen unless you see the jobs numbers deteriorate in a much more drastic fashion. They're expected to be, you know, slowly coming down. Um, but unless there's a real move and we see some layoffs, the consumer still looks in pretty darn good shape. And that's pushing the economy along fairly well. Right. Certainly uh, seems that way. All right, Chris Condon, always good to catch up with you. Federal reporter for Bloomberg down in our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.